0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. This may be the first episode of Words on Film that I've ever hosted where every single movie that I'm reviewing for you is a sequel, but that's just kind of how it turned out. There was one film that I was actually going to review later on in the show. That's not a sequel. It's an original film and it's a Netflix original as well, but I didn't have time to go through all of it. So rather than coming on here and pretending to know all about it, I just am going to skip that one and probably going to review, uh, review it for you on either next week's show or on A future show. I'm just about halfway through it, so I can't exactly uh, do that for you. But I am going to start with one um, sequel that I surprisingly loved, and um, that probably gives away how I felt about it. But there are two other sequels that I'm going to review for you later on in the show. But the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is John Wick Chapter 4. This is, of course, the fourth John Wick film, and I am actually very surprised that, A, I was as into this film as I was, and B, this movie is in its fourth chapter, literally, and still surprisingly has not run out of steam, but there you go. So in John Wick Chapter 4, Keanu Reeves reprises his role as the titular character in the very popular franchise that's been churning out films since 2014 and regardless of the fate of John Wick's character at the end here I'm not necessarily saying there will be more John Wick films but there will be some spin-offs in this John Wick cinematic universe. So in this film John Wick uncovers a path to defeating the high table and for those of you who are unfamiliar or who forgot The High Table in the John Wick Cinematic Universe is a council of 12 crime lords that govern the underworld's most powerful criminal organizations. It is considered the ultimate authority of the underworld and is feared and respected by all, including John Wick himself. And the organization represented by the members of the High Table have many police forces, politicians, and bureaucrats around the world in their pockets, allowing them to conduct business with virtual impunity. And before John Wick can earn his freedom, he must face off against a new enemy with powerful alliances across the globe and forces that turn old friends into foes. That's basically the, the, the gist of it. And the movie starts off, or one of the very first scenes, has John Wick traveling to Morocco and killing the elder, who is the only individual above the high table. And because of this... New York Continental Hotel manager Winston Scott, who is reprised here by Ian McShane, and his concierge Sharon, who is played here by Lance Reddick, who actually, when I saw this film as a sneak preview, Lance Reddick was still alive. A couple of days later, I found out that Lance Reddick passed away at the age of 60, so God rest his soul there. The two of them are summoned to the Marquis Vincent de Gramont, who is played in this movie by Bill Skarsgård. And Bill Skarsgård can play scary, and he can also play very smug. Scary worked very well for him in the IT films, the adaptation of the Stephen King novel, and it works very well for him here, in the sense that he is very smug, he's certainly a um, a, a rich boy, but he also has um, a certain temper to him, And he actually chastises um, Ian McShane's character for his failure to assassinate John Wick. And throughout the film, you never really know whose side Ian McShane is on. You you think at first he's an ally to John Wick, and then other times you think he's an ally to the Marquis de Gourmand while being an adversary to John Wick. And it kind of goes like that. But... John Wick finds himself trying to defeat the high table. And he goes through a lot of people, particularly in Paris, France, to make that happen. And the movie John Wick chapter four runs in, uh, has a running time of approximately two hours, 49 minutes. And I saw this film in IMAX I don't think I would have had this experience if I was staying home watching it on my TV, but in IMAX in particular, I mean on the big screen, particularly in IMAX, the two hours, 49 minutes of this film flew right by. Yeah, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of bloodshed. There's a lot of bullets flying. And John Wick takes a lot of blows to virtually every part of the body, and not only still remains standing, he still remains fighting, which is very impressive. But that's not the only impressive part of this movie. There is actually one other character in this film. His name is Kane, his real name, presumably, and his killer name, and he's played by Donnie Yen. And not only is he a very skilled contract killer, he's also blind. And I think he has probably a very close second in terms of the kills in this movie in addition to John Wick. And John Wick has one asset that Kane doesn't, which is eyesight, but even still Kane is a, a force to be reckoned with for sure. And there are also some other good supporting performances here. As I I mentioned Ian McShane, Lance Reddick and Bill Skarsgård, but I also should note uh, Lawrence Fishburne as the Bowery King reprising his role from one of the previous John Wick films. He also serves as an unambiguous ally to John Wick. And to give away whether or not John Wick succeeds in his mission and how this movie ends would really give away the richness of this film. And I was going into this film preparing to be disappointed. Because after all, usually in fourth films, not always, but many times the franchise begins to lose its steam. And I prepared and somewhat expected for this John Wick film to feel this way, to feel less like the first film that Keanu Reeves did in the John Wick franchise and probably a little bit more like Liam Neeson's action films as of late. I expected for Keanu Reeves to keep fighting but also to be visibly tired, because let's face it, Any other mortal being, regardless of their tenacity for fighting, would probably not resist as many bullets or as many blows to the body as John Wick does here. But Keanu Reeves, despite not exactly being the most charismatic person in this film, or rather not not the most charismatic character he'd play, is, is still somebody to root for here. And I found myself not only rooting for him, but also being absolutely surprised that he was taking as many blows to his body as he did. But yeah, the the movie is very, um, (laughs) very satisfying. It's very violent. So if you don't like violence, of course, you probably won't like this film, but if you're a big fan of the John Wick franchise and has, have seen every movie as I have, I don't think this movie is going to disappoint you. It is directed by Chad Stahelski, excuse me, Chad Stahelski, who has directed the three previous John Wick films, and there's one writer on the film, um, or rather the last three films, Derek Kolstad, who did not write this film. Instead. It's based on characters created by him, but Shay Hatton and Michael Finch took over writing duties for Derek Kolstad. But I think this film definitely serves as a fitting next chapter to the other John Wick films, which is why, surprisingly enough, I will give John Wick Chapter 4 my rating of a knockout. I think it is ultra violent, but not violent for violence' sake. I, st- I think it still manages to tell a story, makes John Wick a convincing hero or an anti-hero, depending on your point of view, but it also introduces some other characters that contribute very well to the story without feeling like cannon fodder. So John Wick chapter four was a movie that I did not expect to impress me, but it really did. And I think it was actually even more memorable than chapters two or three, believe it or not. Not that those were bad films because those were actually really good sequels, but it just speaks to the Testament of John wick chapter four, despite the age of the character and the franchise. I don't know if we are going to see a Chapter 5 of John Wick, but this movie leaves you with the idea that you never really know what's going to happen in the cinematic universe. But rest assured, I'll be sitting in the theater seats waiting for the next chapter, whether or not it's going to impress me. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Shazam! Fury of the Gods. This is, in the DC Extended Universe, the 12th installment, and it is also the sequel to the 2019 film Shazam. And the DC Extended Universe is like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I guess, but it is definitely overall second-rate compared to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And those of you who are out there who were maybe disappointed by Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, I wasn't one of those people who was especially disappointed by that movie, but I know it's been getting a lot of bad word of mouth, which I actually think is somewhat undeserved. But probably the worst film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it might be better than probably all but maybe two or three of the films in the DC Extended Universe. And I considered Shazam, the 2019 film, the second best film in the DC Extended Universe so far. Second only to Wonder Woman. So while I do kind of brace myself for sequels, I would think that Shazam Fury of the Gods, for all its faults, might be better than the... Justice League movie, for example, which the original Shazam certainly was. But in Shazam Fury of the Gods, Asher Angel reprises his role as Billy Batson and Zachary Levy reprises his role as Billy Batson's alter ego, Shazam. And Billy Batson slash Shazam is the champion of an ancient wizard who possesses the wisdom of Solomon the strength of Hercules, the stamina of Atlas, the power of Zeus, the courage of Achilles, and the speed of Mercury. And that's when I actually realized for the first time, and so did the characters here, that Shazam is actually an acronym for Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. For those of you who are very familiar with DC Comics, you probably already knew this, but I actually thought that was a very nice touch to the character of Shazam. So as introduced in the original Shazam, you also have some of Asher Angel's friends who also possess the superhero power of Shazam, but don't actually have names. For instance, there is Freddie Freeman, who's played in child form by Jack Dylan Grazer, and in superhero form by Adam Brody. You also have Grace Caroline Curry as Mary Bromfeld Bromfield, excuse me, who is um Billy's, uh, older foster sister. So when she possesses the powers of Shazam, she doesn't actually turn into another actress, which I thought was actually a nice touch. You also have Eugene, um, rather Ross Butler as, uh, Eugene Choi and in Shazam adult form, he's played by Ian Chen. You also have, um, D- DJ Kotrona in child form and in Shazam form. He's played by uh, Jovan Armand, and his character's name is Pedro Pena. And last, but definitely not least, is the character Daria Dudley, who's played in child form by Faith Herman and in adult Shazam form by Megan Good. So it's great to see those actors reprising their roles in child and adult form. But one thing I really wanted to have this film do is to actually show them get more used to their superpowers, kind of like they did in the first film, or at least go through a little bit of training. And I think that the movie would have benefited from it, but I think that the weakness of the DC Extended Universe is it's still trying to play catch-up with the Marvel Cinematic Universe rather than focusing on character development and story. With that said, however... This story I thought actually was pretty good. So as the uh, characters in Shazam are busy saving the world in their native Philadelphia, there are these three goddesses that are looking to more or less, or the three daughters of Atlas who gain the possession of a certain ancient staff and two out of three of them are trying to rule the world and seek vengeance on their father. There is Hespera, who's played by Helen Mirren. There's Calypso, who's played by Lucy Liu. And there's also Anthea, who's played by Rachel Zegler. The latter actress, Rachel Zegler, was the one who played Maria in her big uh, big screen debut in West Side Story which was directed by Steven Spielberg and when you have a major role in a Steven Spielberg film without having any other prior on-screen acting experience uh th- there is a tendency perhaps to maybe uh go down after that but uh Rachel Zegler here is playing a major role, and I think she's probably one of the stronger actors in this film. However, if she is the youngest daughter of Atlas, and you have um, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu as these other two immortals, I think they might be a little jealous that their other immortal sister, who's about 6,000 years old, looks like Rachel Zegler, you know, with that youth. But that part isn't brought up exactly. But it could have been a really good storyline. So you, you have the six Shazam characters who are getting a little bit cocky with their superpowers. They know they can save mortal beings. But in terms of protecting the Earth from some immortal beings, that's when their test really comes through. And you also have the elder Shazam, the last surviving member of the Council of Wizards, who's played in this film by Jaiman who is who bestows these Shazam powers on Billy Batson and his friends, but is, at least outside, not entirely sure that he should have um, bestowed these powers upon these kids. And I think that the characters of Shazam are trying to prove him wrong as well as trying to prove their worth as heroes. And you you hear Zachary Levy as Shazam really wanting, with everything invested in him, to be a member of the Justice League, just like Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and all the rest. But if only Shazam knew that he was in... A better film than all the other DC Extended Universe characters except Wonder Woman. But because he's not aware that he's in a film, maybe unlike Deadpool, who's self-aware to a fault. he That, that, that definitely doesn't occur to him in this film. But I kind of like that. I do think that some of the humor that came from the original Shazam kind of got old in this Shazam Fury of the Gods movie, for example, I think Zachary Levy acts a little bit more like an adolescent and less like Asher Angel than he did in the original film. I felt almost kind of like he was a, a guy in his twenties who was kind of imitating the Gen Z adolescence, rather than being somebody who actually authentically imitated Asher Angel, and I can't exactly say the same about the other characters who played the Shazam alter egos in their adult form. I, I thought that Megan Good actually probably did the best job imitating um, or at least channeling her younger counterpart, Faith Herman, in this film. But I still would have liked to t- some more authenticity to Zachary Levy's performance, especially considering that he is the main hero of this film. But I did like the special effects of this film. I just thought it did falter in comparison to Shazam, the original 2019 film, but not It didn't falter any lower than many of the other DCEU films, um, which is why I give Shazam Fury of the Gods by rating of a checkout. I did think it told a good story, although it was slightly unfocused, and I also thought that the filmmakers, specifically the director, David Sandberg, who was reprising his directorial effort from the original Shazam might have lost a little bit of faith in his characters and inserted a little bit more comic relief than was needed for this film. But I thought that Shazam Fury of the Gods was still a good ride and still a lot better than The uh, many of the other films in the DC Extended Universe that I've seen so far, and maybe if Shazam would know that he was probably playing a more convincing hero than the recent incarnation of Superman, he probably would have a little bit more faith in himself, and maybe conclude that he doesn't need to be a member of the Justice League, but. Maybe that will be another movie for another time in the DC extended universe, which even though it's been sputtering and stalling in some places, at least has some films within its roster that have impressed me surprisingly. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Scream 6, which is a film that I really was not, frankly, interested in seeing because I was profoundly disappointed by the Scream movie from last year, which should have been called Scream 5, but it wasn't. Instead, it was called Scream. And maybe it was just my irritation with films that are sequels that that have the exact same name as the original movie. For example, the 2018 version of Halloween did just this. It was a sequel to the Halloween from 1978. It could have been called anything but just plain Halloween. I also didn't like it when they did that with Ghostbusters from 2016, which wasn't a sequel to the Ghostbusters from 1984, but it should have been called something else. It could have been called She Ghostbusters, so on and so forth. But that's not the fault of the filmmakers. That's the fault of the people who put these movies out. So maybe it was just that um, that notion that they could have named... They, the Scream movie that came out last year, Scream 5, and maybe it was just that irritation with it that kind of gets to me. But overall, I saw uh, Scream last year and I put it on my list of some of the worst films of the year. I specifically put Scream from 2022 in my worst of list in don't remake good movies because when, when that movie was called Scream, it made me think less that it was a sequel to the 1996 film or its last chapter, which came out in 2011 and made me think more that it was a franchise reboot in disguise. But either way, I wasn't particularly impressed with last year's Scream. I know it got some good reviews, but my main beef with it was it was the exact same story as the original Scream, just with Gen Z characters trying to be meta. So I went into Scream 6 and a lot of people from the original or rather the last year's uh, Scream movie reprised their roles here and not just the um, Gail Weathers, who's played in this movie, reprised by Courtney Cox. The sisters Sam and Tara Carpenter are reprised here by Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega, respectively. And their precocious film-loving friend Mindy Meeks-Martin is reprised in this role as well by Jasmine Savoy Brown. There's also her brother Chad Meeks-Martin, who's played by Mason Gooding, who is actually the son of Cuba Gooding Jr., he is a very good actor, and unlike his father, he has not been canceled. Um, but I, was a- I actually saw Scream 6, and I was more impressed by their acting talents in this film than I was in last year's Scream movie. And I thought that Melissa Barrera and General Ortega were more convincing as sisters in this film than they were in the last one. And I also was impressed a little bit more by some of the um, ways in which they make the Ghostface character survive, and for that matter, kill, this time in New York City where the two um, uh, Carpenter sisters, I almost said Carrera, uh, the Carpenter sisters are attending college in New York City, presumably in Manhattan. And Scream 6 is actually the first installment of the six Scream movies that takes place in another area besides Woodsboro. And I thought that was somewhat creative, but it also kind of reminded me of Friday the 13th, Chapter 8, Jason Takes Manhattan. And that movie was alluded to here in this film, but... I did think there were some more creative kills in this film, and I actually thought that what this movie lacked, or what the what last year's movie lacked, made up uh, for exponentially with the on screen on screen chemistry of Melissa Barrera and Jenna Ortega in particular. But I was actually disappointed that the Ghostface character could still resist as many literal blows to the head and bullets as he or she would and still have the energy to keep on killing. And I I certainly watched some of the kills in this film and I was very skeptical. Also, there were key moments where the victims of Ghostface had Ghostface subdued enough where they could have run up to him or her and ripped off their uh, their mask, and there was also some other instances where they could have solved this issue by you know calling the police, especially where there is an FBI agent that is investigating these new ghostface killings, and this FBI agent is actually Kirby Reed, who's played by Hayden Panettiere, and this is actually Hayden Panettiere's second time in a, a Scream film. She. Had the same role in Scream 4. Um, but I haven't th- that's actually the only Scream film that I haven't seen. I just A was not hosting the show at this time at that time. And B, um, I just really wasn't interested because how good could a fourth film be? Um, and I still kind of have that same feeling with Scream 6. I thought actually some of the suspenseful parts of this film were really good. There was one character actually at the very beginning that was killed within the first five minutes that I really wish would have been a character that had been elaborated upon later. Instead, she kind of played the thankless Drew Barrymore role of getting killed in the first five minutes. Um, And there was another interesting twist where the the person who was wearing the ghost face mask who killed this character actually took the mask off. And I initially thought, this would be a very unique entry into the scream franchise, showing knowing who the killer was and then showing the killings from his or her perspective. but instead they just kind of went with the same sort of ghost face is is stalking these people and is killing them for no apparent reason or so it seems. But with that said, when the Ghostface killers were actually revealed later on in the film, and I obviously will not give you uh, the spoiler as to who those killers were, I will tell you there's more than one. And that's not exactly spoiling anything, because I think there's been more than one in every entry to the stream franchise now. I thought it actually was creative who it was. I thought their motives were valid. And another thing I thought was I actually cared about who the characters were. So I thought that was a good reveal, Uh, but there were some other weaknesses that made me not recommend this movie as much. For example, you find out that Sam and Tara Carpenter are the daughters of one of the killers from the previous film, and that killer actually makes a paranormal cameo appearance in this film, which I thought was really hokey. Not only did the actor who played this former killer not look anything at all like he did in, in the late nineties, but I also didn't really like his dialogue and I didn't really like his clairvoyant, um, pep talks for his daughters who were supposed to be the good people in this movie. And this killer was obviously the villain of a previous film. So I, I didn't really like his appearance at all. And also the editing in this film was a bit shoddy where there are some characters who were stabbed by the ghost face, um, killer. And then in an, in the very next scene, they're okay. They're still running around. They're still not bleeding. And I thought that was really lazy. Um, in, in terms of both a storytelling perspective and an editing perspective, so while I liked Scream Six a little bit more than last year's Scream film, actually quite a bit more, I still give Scream Six a strikeout because I'm thinking that Hollywood is going to see this film do as well as it has done over the last couple of weeks, and they're going to think rather than expanding upon the movie and make it better, they're just gonna. Create the same kind of retread. The person who appears in the very beginning of the film is going to be killed off in the first five minutes, as has been done with just about every other Scream film. There's going to be a ghost face killer who resists blows to the head, just like in every other film. The, uh, the people who are being chased by the ghost killer who subdue them don't have the common sense to make sure the Ghostface killer is actually dead before running away, particularly if they have the gun or they have the knife or they have the weapon advantage. And I feel like Scream 6 followed the same kind of pattern. So I am not somebody who's against slasher films. I like them if they are good. In fact, I don't even have a favorite genre of movies. I just like good movies. If it's a great horror film, I'll get in on it. But I do have the feeling that Scream 7, which seems to be inevitable in its release later on, is just going to follow the same kind of tired pattern and eventually people are going to get tired of it. And maybe I'm one of those people. I don't know. But they're going to keep milking these films until one of them sucks. But they really should have put a lid on this after Scream 3. Then again, I haven't seen Scream 4, so I can't exactly say. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, which were surprisingly all sequels, believe it or not, some of which worked better than others, in my opinion, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released in theaters or on streaming for the week of March 27th through March 31st, 2023, and there are a few films that are subject to being released in certain theaters, and I'm not saying these films are going to be released in theaters nationwide, on March 28th and March 30th. The first film that is subject to being released on March 28th is one of two documentaries that's going to be released on that day, and the first one is called Dr. Who Am I?, if you think that's related to Doctor Who, then you are absolutely correct. Doctor Who Am I is a movie about an infamous Doctor Who screenwriter who is reluctantly dragged back into the American universe in this funny and moving documentary about finding family in the unlikeliest of places. So I don't exactly know what the American universe is. I do know that Doctor Who is a long, 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 long-running British TV show that is almost as old, almost as old as television itself. And I know that Doctor Who has an American following, I actually have not seen any episodes of Doctor Who, new or old, but I do know that telephone booth because that has incorporated itself into the public lexicon, but even though I'm not a fan of Doctor Who and haven't seen any episodes at all, I actually am very interested in seeing this documentary. I just don't know if I necessarily will. I know it's premiered so far at several film festivals Over the last uh, year, because this is credited as a 2022 film that's getting presumably a nationwide release in 2023, I would love to see this any way I could either on the big screen or by way of streaming, but I don't know if I will, but I'm interested in seeing it. And if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. The other documentary that is subject to being released in theaters on March 28, 2023, which is a Tuesday, is a movie that's called Santiago, The Camino Within. This is about the Camino de Santiago, which is a well-traversed tra- pilgrimage route dating back to medieval times. Legend recalls that the remains of the Christian apostle St. James the Great were mysteriously discovered at uh, the Cathedral of Santiago de Compostela in Spain after having thought to be lost. I don't know um, who would get a rise out of discovering a human's remains, but there you go. I I guess some archaeologist. But the film, The Camino Within, follows pilgrims along this way. Sharing their stories and profound experiences about how walking the Camino changes them in different ways, viewers will be inspired to experience this pilgrimage as their own interior journey of discovery. And remember, this is a documentary. I mean, it certainly has some, uh, it sounds like a fictional film, but I'm interested in seeing it, actually, if, if real people are going on this journey. I don't know if I will, but if I do, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on March 30th, which is a Thursday, is a film that's called Assassin, which doesn't have the most original name. There have been other movies that have been called The Assassin or Assassins before. But this film is directed by and co-written by Jesse Atlas and stars, amongst other people, Bruce Willis. And in this film, a man dies as part of an experimental military program and a former black ops soldier takes his place to find out who kills him. I'm actually very surprised that Bruce Willis is starring in another film after all the news that has been going on about his impending dementia, but I don't know if it's kudos to Bruce Willis for getting back out there in the film game and still making the best movies that he can, or if he is in some sort of financial dire straits that's forcing him to be in these kinds of films, I don't exactly know. I'm a little worried for his sake because he shouldn't be overworking himself given his mental state. And but, but then again, I'm not a doctor, and I'm also not Bruce Willis's doctor, even if I did go through medical school residency and all the rest, which I don't intend to do because I diagnose films not humans, (laughs) and you can quote me on that, but Assassin is a film that is subject to being released in theaters on March 30th, as I said, and it co-stars Andy Allo, Dominic Purcell, Eugenia Kuzmina, and Mustafa Shakir, amongst other people. This is a film that I doubt I'm going to see, but if I do see it, I'll let you know what I think on a future show. And on March 31st, Friday, 2023, there are a number of big films that are coming out. The first and the foremost film that's coming out on that day is Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. And this movie is being advertised like crazy. And there was a previous uh, Dungeons & Dragons film that came out in the year 2000. It starred Jeremy Irons and Marlon Wayans, amongst other people. And that movie was a critical and commercial failure. But this movie, Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, has Chris Pine starring in it. And one reason that it's an asset is not only because Chris Pine is an A-lister, but in starring as James Tiberius Kirk in the 2009 franchise reboot of Star Trek, Chris Pine was one of the reasons that Star Trek re-entered the public lexicon, and he, as well as many of the filmmakers who worked on Uh, the, that 2009 version of star Trek, in my opinion, knocked the dust out of a stale franchise. So I think they're going to do the same with dungeons and dragons here in this movie, dungeons and dragons honor among thieves. But I don't know if this is going to attract as big a mainstream audience as this film is intended to attract. And I also don't know if people who grew up playing dungeons and dragons, in their basements, are going to like this film either. I do know that the 2000 movie Dungeons & Dragons has a cult following, but almost in kind of a bad movie sort of way, that bad movies have cult followings. But then again, I can't make any judgments about that Dungeons & Dragons film because I haven't seen it. But I can tell you about this film. It's a movie about a charming thief and a band of unlikely adventurers who embark on an epic quest to retrieve a lost relic, but things go dangerously awry when they run afoul of the wrong people. So as I said, Chris Pine stars in this movie alongside Michelle Rodriguez, Regé-Jean Page, who is huge right now with his role in the Shonda Rhimes hit TV show, Bridgerton, and he's become a household name in addition to other things as a result. So I think it's only a matter of time before he... Ventures into movies and maybe he will be a big hit in movies. I don't exactly know other actors in this film include Justice Smith Hugh Grant Sophia Lillis and Chloe Coleman amongst other people Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves will be released in theaters on March 31st It's a film that I probably will see and I'll let you know what I think on a future show back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host movie critic, Dan Burke, and this is usually the part of the show where I venture into what's coming up next for streaming movies, but in this case, there are more movies besides Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves that are going to be coming out on March 31st, 2023. Whether or not they're going to be coming out in a theater near you remains to be seen, and I, I can't guarantee it. But there are some other interesting films that are subject to being released in theaters on that date. Besides the Dungeons & Dragons film, the other movie that is subject to being released in theaters is a movie that's called Tetris, and this is not only subject to being released in theaters, this is also an Apple original film, which means I will not be able to watch this film at home because I, I don't subscribe to Apple TV+. Plus. But I hope to see it eventually... This is a film that is not exactly a, a, a movie adaptation of a popular video game like the Mario Brothers movie that's going to be coming out later. And I'm actually kind of excited to see that film. But this is a true story about how one of the world's most popular video games found its way to players around the glo- globe. And businessman Hank, Rod- Hank Rogers, who's played here by Taron Edgerton, and Tetris inventor Alexey Pajitnov joins forces in the USSR, risking it all to bring Tetris to the masses. And for those of you who remember playing Tetris on their Game Boy like I did back in the late 80s and early 90s, this game was definitely Russian and it incorporated some Russian folk music into... It's video game design and brought that Russian folk music to the public lexicon, including the dun, 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 dun. But this movie, Tetris, is a movie that I will see, even if my, you know, because my life depends on it, sort of. But it's a movie that I'm very eager to see. Will it convince me to subscribe to Apple TV Plus? No. But I hope to see this in theaters, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on March 31st, 2023, is a movie that's called Rye Lane. And this is a movie that actually takes place in South London, and it has uh, black characters in it. you You see some movies, probably more TV shows about black people in London, but not a lot of them. So this is unique in that respect, but this is a movie about two youngsters who are black, who are reeling from, <clears throat> excuse me, from bad breakups who connect over an eventful day in South London. The director of this film is Rain Allen Miller. And the stars of this movie include David Johnson, Vivian Opara, and Poppy Allen Quarmby, amongst other people. And I'm looking for some other familiar names, and I don't see them. But this is a movie that looks really poignant, and uh, it's a movie that I would love to see if it's coming out in the theater near me, but I can't guarantee that it is. But I'll look out for it, and I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released in theaters on March 31st, and I think I'm getting into the more obscure ones here, is a movie that's called Malum, M-A-L-U-M. It is a horror film that looks very, very dark, and it's about a rookie police officer willingly take, who willingly takes the last shift at a newly decommissioned police station in an attempt to uncover the mysterious connection between her father's death and a vicious cult, The movie is directed by Anthony de Blasi and stars Jessica Sula as the cop who takes the night shift, although she looks less like a police officer, more like a supermodel. She is very attractive. But the movie also co-stars Monroe Klein, Clark Wolf, and Natalie Victoria, amongst other actors. I don't know if I'm going to see this film or if it's coming out in the theater near me. The poster of this film looks incredibly freaky. It is, it's is—it's a black poster with these snake-like eyes and the this wolf-like mouth. So just that minimalism is freaky enough for me, and it makes me sort of, in a reverse psychology kind of way, really want to see this film. But because I am a cinephile, I will see it if it's coming out in the theater near me, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show, another film, a subject for release on March 31st is a movie that I've actually seen advertised or at least publicized, which is a movie that's called a thousand to one. It's a film that is directed by A. V. Rockwell, who also wrote the screenplay and A. V. Rockwell is a black woman director. I don't know if she is American or not. My sources are not telling me whether or not she is, but this is a movie about a a woman who is after unapologetically and fiercely loyal Inez kidnaps her son, Terry from the foster care system, mother and son set out to reclaim their sense of home identity and stability in a rapidly changing New York city. The actress who is the star of this film, who plays Inez, is Teyana Taylor, and I don't want to confuse her with Teyana Paris, who is another acclaimed black actress, but uh, Teyana Taylor has been in a number of films as of recently. She co-starred with Eddie Murphy in Coming to America, and I want to emphasize the emphasize the two because it is a sequel to the 1988 film, which also starred Eddie Murphy. She's also, she danced in a music video by Kanye West called Fade. And she also has, has a music career of her own. She's had other songs like, for example, Bear With Me. And I'm not familiar with her music, but I am vaguely familiar with Some of her acting and this movie actually kind of looks like it could be her breakout role. And it looks like one of those films that would do very well on the indie circuit. I'm very, very eager to see it. And, but I don't know if I will for the next show that I'll do, but I'll look out for it. Just like these other films that look amazing. And I'm not exactly sure if it's going to come out in a theater near me. And man, I wish there were 48 hours in a day so I could watch some of these other films and maybe not sleep for 16 hours in those 48-hour days. And there are a number of other films that are subject to being released in theaters on March 31st. I highly doubt some of these films will be coming out in a theater near me, let alone you. But I'll keep going down them just to let you know what's out there. So there's a film that is a foreign film that's coming out sooner or later, and it's called Smoking Causes Coughing. Its original title is Fumar fait Tossier, and it is directed by Quentin Dupier, who presumably is a French director. And, yep, he actually is from France. Specifically, he is from a town called uh, Clamart in the French region of haute sain So he's not exactly... Born and bred in Paris, but just like Americans are not necessarily from New York City, Quentin Dupier is from another region in France that does not get the same kind of attention that Paris does. But this movie, uh, Smoking Causes Coughing, is about a group of vigilantes called the Tobacco Force that is falling apart. To rebuild Team Spirit, their leader suggests that they meet for a week-long retreat before returning to save the world. Now, there's one thing I know about uh, Europeans, and particularly Western Europeans, in that they smoke quite a bit. I'm not saying everyone smokes, but I remember when I was studying abroad in Spain, and I would come back... From the bars late at night, and even though I didn't smoke, I remember my clothes reeking of cigarettes. And I think over there, they not everyone smoked, but the concern about secondhand smoke wasn't really that big a deal. But that was back in 2002, 21 years ago. So maybe the attitudes about smoking in Europe have changed, but I don't know. But this is a film that definitely looks kind of like um, your superhero fair, maybe. But it looks a little lower budget than that. And it also is a comedy horror sci-fi film. I'm not sure exactly where the horror comes from exactly from seeing some of the clips that I do, but it looks like a funny film, and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. Another movie that is subject to being released on that Friday, March 31st, is a movie that's called Kill Bok Soon. And this is a film that is directed by and written by soong Hyun Byun who is a Korean director, presumably South Korean. And this is a movie about a single mother who is a renowned hired killer who finds it difficult to achieve a balance between her personal and work life. I think this kind of uh, film has been done before, but not in what looks like Korea. And this film is actually not coming out in theaters, uh, or at least not in um, its native South Korea. It's actually coming out on Netflix on March 31st. Is this a film that I'll see? I don't exactly know, but I'll look out for it and I'll let you know what I think if I see it on a future show. And there are many other films that are subject to be released in theaters on March 31st. The last one I'll mention is a film that's called Acid Man. And this is, as far as I know, not a, a foreign film. It stars Thomas Hayden Church and Diana Agron. And it's a film about a woman by the name of Maggie who tracks down her estranged and reclusive father, Lloyd. And together they attempt to make First Contact. This is not only a drama, but it's also a sci fi film, which leads me to believe that first contact means being contacted by aliens. So the director of this film is Alex Lehman, who is an American. And amongst some of the other films he has directed, includes, uh, Paddleton, which is a film that came out in 2019. Also meet cute, which came out in 2022 last year. And I'm not entirely familiar with some of the films that he's done, but it's, this movie looks particularly interesting and I might see it, but I'll let you know what I think on a future show. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke, and until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.